History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 81st episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are joined on this episode by special co-host Stephen Pappas. How you doing, Stephen? I'm good. Thanks for having me on again. And we are thrilled because we are going back to the Blue Ridge Mountains, which are, we've heard, gorgeous, according to Stephen. We can't wait to see them ourselves. And we're going to look at the Biltmore Estate. This uh, Biltmore Estate sounds like a really cool place to visit. Y'all come through. Y'all should go to the mountains for a day and do like this and run over to uh, Flat Top and all that stuff. Yeah, I think we're going to be hanging around the Blue Ridge Mountains a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, one, it's beautiful, of course, but... Too. It's uh, it's got some interesting stuff in Biltmore. Geez, you can you can kill a whole day there. I mean, we we went and got there at ten in the morning. I don't think we left till sundown. Like it's just there's so much to do. There's so many rooms you go in and out of. If you're a history nerd like me, the audio tour thing. I'll stand in each room and listen to it. Oh I mean, my gosh, I can't. So it's basically this huge museum. Yeah, it's just a huge. Uh, like it says, 252 rooms of just museum. I mean, in it, you hear 252 rooms, and to me that means, like, bedrooms. But, yeah. I mean, some of these rooms are... Like I mean, a ballroom and stuff? Yeah, like the dining hall is just this... It's that big classic dining room you see in, like, Beauty and the Beast. And oh, wow. Like, just the huge table and the chairs, and there's a music wing that they never finished originally because the musician in the home died i can't remember exactly whether they finished it ever or not but the room is still there and it's all just golly the library's massive it's a hell of a place (laughs) sounds like it holy cow but yeah i'm sure i don't know if y'all looked at any pictures but it's it's huge i haven't seen any of the inside but i did see the outside and you know it's hard to tell when it's just sitting there by itself yeah it's like yeah i guess it's big but yeah when you think about 252 rooms i mean that's an apartment complex (laughs) Yeah. yeah. This was once the home of one of the Vanderbilts. And, you know, when you hear Vanderbilt, I always think of jeans. What about you, Denise? Oh, you mean like Gloria Vanderbilt? Yeah. I don't know. It just sounds rich. So I think money, old money. You'd think so. This family is not rich anymore. Why? Because the jeans stink? No, but you know, when you hear about the people who win the lotto and then they spend all the money after they win it? Yep. That's kind of like what the Vanderbilts did. Oh, bummer for them. Before we get into talking about that, we do want to point you over at the website, historygoesbump.com. It's got everything you could want to know about the show. Denise, where can they reach us if they want to send us an email? They can reach us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And Denise, we have a few more people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. That is fantastic. We have Missy. Hey, Missy. Annalise. Hey, Annalise. Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Teresa. Hey, Teresa. Jamie. Hey, Jamie. And Jennifer. 
And Jennifer, hello. We also got three more reviews over at iTunes. Wow. I'll start with uh, the best one first, which is our one-star review. Oh, okay. <laughs> got to have one stars. It means we're getting out there. I have to give this person credit. They at least had cojones to actually write a review. So thank you for doing that. Yes, thank you. This comes from Papa Panda. This would be a great show if the sound quality were better. And then we have Mean Miss C with five stars. Great listen. I wish I could give more than five stars. Great show, great hosts, and great behind the scenes with research, too. Thank you for the great show and hard work. Well, thank you, Mean Miss C. And she actually has a little uh, YouTube channel where she covers different urban legends. Oh, very cool. Different kinds like the ones that say, you know, if you use this product, your hair will fall out. Or going back to the Halloween episodes, talking about poison candy and how we all came to find out that that wasn't true. And we could have been eating candy the whole time we were trick-or-treating. Didn't need our parents to check it. Well, we can do that now as adults. Exactly. I'm happy to check all the candy for all the children. (laughs) Check it right into your mouth. (laughs) And then we have Happy Go Lucky Girl 5253. Love this podcast. Five stars. Denise and Diane are such an intelligent and entertaining duo. I love anything supernatural. And these podcasts have kept me in very good company on my long hike from Canada to Mexico. Holy cow. That's a long hike. (laughs) That's more than a long hike. It's a long hike to go from my backyard to my front yard. (laughs) I've only been listening since around Hollywood 2015, which means pretty recent. But I'm almost caught up on every episode and I plan on continuing to listen as long as they continue to broadcast. Thank you, girls, for all that you do. Well, thank you, happy-go-lucky girl. We appreciate that. Very much. I still can't get out of my brain. Canada to Mexico? That's a lot of steps. I hope she has her Fitbit on. We hit the magical number 1,000 of followers over on Twitter. Oh, that's great. And we got a tweet from Rhonda K. Mayfield. She said, new listener here. You ladies are fabulous. Currently listening from the beginning and on episode 16. Catch up soon. So thank you for tuning in, Rhonda. Thank you so much. And I did want to point out that uh, sometimes we go a little bit off script and we do things off the top of our head. And on the last podcast, which featured the legend of the Jersey Devil, we were talking about a certain almanac that was published by Benjamin Franklin. Was that Little Richard's almanac? (laughs) (laughs) Denise, I love our listeners. They not only tell us the correct pronunciations of things, but they also catch the little things like that. (laughs) Yeah, little. I don't know if I was thinking good golly Miss Molly when it came to the almanac or what, (laughs) but uh, it's poor Richard's almanac, (laughs) not little Richard's almanac. But hey, I bet that would have been a lot more fun than poor Richard's. I bet you so. It would have had a lot more beat. What do you think, Stephen? Shouldn't it be Little Richards? Yeah. Well, to me, where I grew up, Little Richards is a barbecue place. So, I mean. <laughs> hey, barbecue's good. Yes, there is. I can get behind that. Are you guys ready to go to the Biltmore Estate? We are. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. A mysterious sculptor has been leaving his work around parts of Amsterdam. 
On January 30th in 1989, a little sculpture appeared in a tree in Vondel Park. The statue is diminutive, standing only 50 centimeters high. It is cast from bronze and depicts a man wearing work gear and leaning down with a saw in his hand. The saw is butted up against a branch as if the statue is attempting to cut the branch loose. He has been named the Little Woodcutter. No one has claimed to be the creator of the art piece. No one saw the sculptor being installed, although Vondel Park sits across from one of Amsterdam's busiest squares. The piece was placed so securely that the tree has begun to grow around the woodcutter. The same sculptor has installed other works around Amsterdam that include several small men climbing the wall in the Angelusstraat and a musician in the town hall. Why would a sculptor create works that he or she would not claim? Why place them secretly around a major international city? It certainly seems quite odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> this Day in History On this day, November 9th in 1799, the French Revolution effectively ended and Napoleon Bonaparte overthrew the government of the Directory and installed the consulate in a bloodless coup d'etat. It was officially called the Coup of 18 Bruimar. Bruimar was the second month in the French Republican calendar. The day began with Napoleon's brother Lucien lying to the Directory about a coup in Paris. Most of the Directory resigned. Then Napoleon stormed the chamber of the Council of Ancients and after some resistance they gave in to his show of military force. He then moved on to the Council of 500, and they were very hostile. Napoleon was assaulted and nearly fainted. His military pulled him out. Lucien decided to lie again, and he announced to the men guarding the Council of 500 that the council was under attack. He pointed to Napoleon's bloody face for proof. The guards ran in and dispersed the council, and that was the end of the government. A constitution was drawn up giving Napoleon more power than either council, and he became dictator. You're listening to History Goes Bump. Many people have heard of the Vanderbilt family. They are a family of Dutch origin that amassed a huge fortune in transportation through both shipping and the railroad. Their prominence lasted through to the mid-20th century, and then the fall of the House of Vanderbilt occurred. Many of their mansions and other properties were torn down, but one survives today and is considered the largest home in America, the Biltmore Estate. It is a beautiful home that housed George Vanderbilt II's family at one time, and it just may still house the family in the afterlife. Could it be that this impressive mansion is haunted? Come with us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Biltmore Estate. In 1784, William Davidson and his family traveled over the Blue Ridge Mountains and so loved the area that they found themselves in that they decided to stay. Other settlers followed, and within a year, a permanent settlement had been established that would come to be known as the city of Asheville. It was given that name in 1797 and was named for the then governor, Samuel Ashe. As roads continued to bring people into the city, it began to flourish and soon became known as a resort town. The scenery here is breathtaking, and it is no wonder that the area attracted George Vanderbilt. How close are you to Asheville, Stephen? Um, I'm about three hours away in Charlotte, 
So it's not too bad. It's just a shot down I-40. And is that over to the west then? Yes. It's uh, Asheville's kind of right along the line with Tennessee, which is also funny enough where the Moses Cone Manor is also kind of on that line, just about two hours north. So a lot of stuff seems to be going on in those mountains. Well, and I know that they said that this house was pretty close to the, is it the Great Smoky Mountain National Park? Yeah, it's um, Asheville kind of really does ride that line. There's a casino in Cherokee, which is right near Asheville. And a lot of people who vacation in Tennessee will cross over to go to the casino. And Moses Cone was right near that national park, too, right? Right. It okay. was more toward the uh, northern area of that park in the North Carolina area of it. That must be a large park. It is. Uh, it's the same as like the Blue Ridge Parkway runs all up and down multiple states. So it's kind of like that. It just is this huge mountainous area. Okay. Very cool. Oh, it's beautiful. George Vanderbilt II was born in November of 1862 in Staten Island, New York, to William Henry Vanderbilt and Maria Louisa Kissam. He was the youngest of the Vanderbilt children, and by the time he reached his mid-20s, he had inherited upwards of $12 million from both his father and his grandfather. Can you imagine being in your mid-20s and you've got $12 million? Nope. I can't imagine that it would stay around much time, though, either, because a 20-year-old wouldn't know what to do with 12 mil. Hey, now. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen's like, I'm responsible. (laughs) I'm in my mid-20s, and I I barely have $12, but I'd be responsible. I just bought a house today. (laughs) Well, there you go, and congratulations Congratulations. to you guys. Absolutely. I was going to say, I know how to grow up now. You grew up faster than we did. Denise waited until she was in her almost 50s, and I was in my almost 40s. So you grew up faster than us. (laughs) The Vanderbilt family had amassed the first real great fortune of the industrial age. They built mansions everywhere, picking prime real estate locations. It all started with Cornelius, who used his business savvy to turn $100 into a great fortune through the steamship business and then the railroad. Cornelius was a bit of a scoundrel, though. He was known to be illiterate and would curse and spit a lot and had a penchant for fondling the maids. After his wife died, he married his cousin, who was 43 years his junior, and I believe he was something like 75 at the time. He thought I was old. I have a feeling she married him for his money. (laughs) At the time of his death, he had more money than the U.S. Treasury. George's dad, William, would best his father, who thought he would be a failure, and doubled the family fortune that would equal $300 billion in today's dollars. The family would fall from these heights, and a grandchild would eventually die penniless. It took only a generation for the family members to spend the family fortune. This is how opulently and foolishly this family lived. George's older brothers ran the family business, and he was able to spend more time doing the things he loved. He worked the family farm and eventually took a short trip with his mother at the age of 26 to the Blue Ridge Mountains. They visited the town of Asheville, and after falling in love with the area, he decided to build his country home there. Construction began on the Biltmore House the next year in 1889 and would continue for six years. It's kind of cute that they call it a country home. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a little country home. At least they didn't call it a cottage. I think I think country home and I'm thinking like, you know, this little cottage with like a meadow and, you know, all the like quilted stuff on the inside. I'm not really thinking Biltmore. There were so many workers and the building took so long that Biltmore Village was created to house everyone. This was at the time a state of the art company village. Today it has become a wonderful shopping district with everything from antiques to galleries to restaurants to shops. 
The Biltmore Estate was built in the French Renaissance style and designed by architect Richard Morris Hunt. By the time of construction wrapped in 1895, it had 252 rooms, 33 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, 3 kitchens, 16 chimneys, a 12,000-foot carriage house for George's 20-plus carriages, and was 178,926 square feet. Oh, my God. Clean that, clean that one, Diane. Oh, my. If I had to clean that, I think I'd shoot myself in the head. Golly. This made it then, and still, the largest privately owned home in America. It was fixed with electricity, heat, elevators, and an intercom system, all of which were very rare luxuries at this time. George's bedroom, as well as his wife's, are both located on the second floor, along with many extravagant guest rooms lining the halls filled with portraits and priceless works of art. There's a two-story library on the first floor. It sits at the end of a 90-foot-long tapestry gallery and housed over 10,000 volumes in various languages. George was an intellectual man and enjoyed sitting in the library and soaking in the knowledge these books possessed. The third and fourth floors housed the servants in 21 bedrooms, as well as an observatory overlooking the Blue Ridge Mountains. Oh, wow. Did you get to go up into the observatory? Uh, no, I think that is closed. Oh. But honestly, I went into so many rooms that had balconies and I, I might not have even known if I went in it. Oh, wow. That just sounds like an amazing view. Oh, I'm sure. It, the view from a lot, especially the library, the view from that is gorgeous. It overlooks the gardens. It's a really cool place. Can you imagine having so many servants you needed 21 bedrooms for them? That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they needed the intercom system so they could talk to each other. No kidding. Yeah, that was really strange to me. I, I couldn't even imagine an intercom system in 1895. I would love to see what that looked like because I've seen like the bell systems and buzzer systems they used to have in some of the, the ritzy types of houses back then. But I wonder how that worked. Uh, in my head, it's just a very loud person yelling from floor to floor. Yeah, I'm th or thinking tin cans hooked by a little line. <laughs> <laughs> by a string. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, gosh, it does make you wonder what how that worked. Hmm. We'll have to investigate the Victorian-era intercom, what that would have been like. <laughs> there was a billiards room for men and women visiting the estate. In this room, there was a standard pool table and comfortable seating to share drinks and company. More interesting, though, was a secret door in the room. No women or house servants were allowed to enter through this door. It took George and his guests to a smoking room for cigars and brandy, as well as to the gun room where George's gun collection and trophies were on display. So I guess that's basically your low-tech man cave. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but... sort of. It's, it's, it is a dark kind of secret manly room what with all the heads staring at you. Oh, well, so you got to go in there. Yeah. Well, as much in it as you can. They have the door roped off, but you can kind of stick your head in okay. and uh, look around. A lot of heads, a lot of skins, a lot of guns. <laughs> so he liked to hunt. It's interesting that the women could be around pool and like billiards, but not where the guns and stuff was. No brandy and smoking. No, smoking cigars for the girls. In the basement, there was a 70,000-gallon swimming pool with heated water and lighting as well as a gym and one of the first private bowling alleys in the U.S. Also in the basement were many of the service rooms. Laundry was done here and food prepared in one of the two kitchens in the basement. They even had a form of refrigeration, which was state-of-the-art for the time. So a lot of new inventions in this place where all that money went. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, you can see where they just it, talk about a money pit. 
<laughs> well, and it seems like, I mean, even people who hit it big today do the same thing. They go out and buy the state of the art, whatever it might be, and the cars and stuff. So this is just the 1800s version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. In 1914, George passed away after complications from an appendectomy. He was 51 years old. The house was open to the public in March of 1930 during the Great Depression. Visitors could come and tour the home during the day. This was a request by the city of Asheville to gain funds for tourism. They closed the doors in 1942 to house valuable artwork. The U.S. feared an attack in Washington, D.C. and transported 17 sculptures and 62 paintings to the Biltmore for safekeeping. Among these were the works of Rembrandt, Raphael, and the portrait of George Washington by Gilbert Stuart. The house was eventually opened to the public again in 1956, and put on the National Register of Historic Landmarks in 1964. Oh, that's a good year. <laughs> <laughs> the home has appeared in various films, including Forrest Gump, The Last of the Mohicans, and Patch Adams. The home now houses an inn, a vineyard, shopping and dining options, and hosts more than one million visitors each year. George loved his home and the Blue Ridge Mountains. I've been there, and I mean, guys, I got to agree that the area is gorgeous. I couldn't imagine anybody would ever really want to leave. It would seem many people stick around even after death. Those people include members of the Vanderbilt family. Many visitors to the Biltmore have heard a voice whispering the name George, and many think this could be his wife whispering to her beloved husband. Many have also seen an unidentified woman in black. They say she's wailing, crying as if her heart is broken. No one knows for sure the identity of the woman in black. Some who work in the house have heard crying at night and have even found a diary of a woman who lost two young children while living in the house. Could this be the mysterious woman in black? Is it George's wife? I heard an interesting thing about the voice that says George. I guess when they would be hosting people, I'm thinking he was a little bit of an introvert because he loved that library so much. He'd go in there to read some of his books. And I think his wife would be like, okay, we have people here we're entertaining. And she'd go in there and she'd be calling for him to, come on, George, come out and say hi to your guests. And so Hmm. some people think that that might be what that is, too, is that she's calling to him to come out of the library. Hmm. Makes you wonder if it's more of a residual type thing then. Yeah. Yeah. And the woman in black would make more sense to me to be the woman who lost her children because black was a color of mourning. So... Exactly. And now we have a woman in black instead of a woman in white. Well, we'll have to go find a woman in white there at the Biltmore. (laughs) You're wearing the wrong dress. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't anybody tell you how to dress for ghostly hauntings? You're supposed to wear white. The library seems to be a center for activity as well. Visitors have reported feeling a cold gust of wind on the back of their neck and getting dizzy and nauseated. Employees of the estate have reported seeing George himself sitting in a chair in the library on evenings when storms are rolling in. This would fit with his accounts of reading when it was not proper weather for writing. Many people say they feel an anxiety starting in the bowling alley and growing as you pass into the locker room. Makes you wonder why that is. Going from the bowling alley to the locker room and you get anxious. Maybe it was a bad, bad bowling game. I guess. Is there a lot of money <laughs> well, on that? <laughs> not enough strength. In my experience, it's because you're going from the bowling alley to the locker room, and then you're heading into the next room. It's like a chain of events until you finally get to that last room. Gotcha. When they step into the pool area, many feel as though they are having a full-blown panic attack. A few accounts also speak of a woman in black floating beneath the water's surface, but the pool has been drained for years, so how this is possible, we don't know. Some people even feel a violent feeling in the room and claim to hear splashing and children playing. 
there are a few accounts of folks feeling as though water was dripped onto their arms. There was a rumor that a child had drowned in the pool, but we were unable to find any records of this happening, and most chalk it up to an urban legend. There still remains an eerie feeling in the room of being watched, which makes you wonder, you know, she lost her two young children, and then you have a child drowning in the pool. Is there a connection there? pool is definitely an area with a lot of activity. That's why I'm wondering, because you start in the bowling alley, then you go to the locker room, which is the changing room, and then you head straight from the locker room into the pool. So it's kind of this weird, eerie feeling as you enter the pool, and then the pool area is terrifying. Yeah, so it's like it's almost like you're feeling whatever spirit might have suffered in there, what they were feeling, and as you get closer to it, you feel it more? Maybe so. I was going to say that that's how it was for me. Yeah, so you visited this place and had some weird feelings and things happen to you. Why don't you share it with everybody? Sure, yeah. I mean, when I was there, I didn't see anything. I didn't, I mean, I forgot to include it in the research for this one. I mean, there's things all the way down to the apparition of a headless cat weird. running around the grounds. Yeah, like that's huh. that's really odd. So I didn't see anything weird, but we were walking through and being a history nerd I am, I'm like, oh, here's a bowling alley. Cool. Well, we're going to the pool. And I was like, this is all so cool to have in a house. When we got into the pool, yeah, <laughs> it, it took a turn. Like I was, I was in a really good mood and then I got in the pool room. I felt sick. Like I just, I was really uneasy. I was scared. And my wife was kind of teasing me because I, you know, I almost drowned when I was like 11 years old. And Ooh. so I don't really like water. Uh-huh. And so, but it's drained, so there's nothing there. So she was kind of teasing me. You know, you can't drown in this pool. It's really fine. Like, you're going to be fine. And I just, like, I was upset. Like, I got really sad. I just had to get out of there. And so, you know, like I said, it's a self-guided tour. And so I just, I darted out of there, stepped into the next room. And, you know, I started feeling better after we kind of got further away. But I thought maybe I ate something or, you know, I, I mean, and maybe this will debunk it. I do have an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it doesn't usually just hit bam right away. And then as soon as I can leave a room, you know, there's not much claustrophobia in it for me or anything like that. Um, so I don't really know why, um, I thought maybe I was getting sick, but when I got home, I kind of was Googling things about the Biltmore. A lot of people, I mean, the most things on the internet about Biltmore hauntings all has to do with the pool. I mean, it's everybody seems to get this really weird feeling in there. Which means something it's, definitely must have happened in there. Have you yeah. ever felt sensitive before when you're at a place? Like you're taking on the emotions of something? Yeah, I have. So you would say you're probably a little bit sensitive to begin with. Uh, it scares me to say that. But, uh, <laughs> especially, like I said, we just bought a house and I'm kind of scared to move into it. Cause I'm like, I don't know what happened in this house. Anything could have happened. We could be on top of an ancient Indian burial ground. <laughs> I hesitate to say that I'm sensitive, but I have kind of growing up in a religious background. People thought it was some sort of gift, but I, I did kind of always have the ability to kind of sense a room. If somebody's upset, I can find that person. I don't know. It's very strange. I just emotionally am kind of in tune with the spaces. Well, the reason why I was asking is because I wasn't sure if you were either picking up on the emotions that seem to be hanging there in the air or if it's whatever spirit is there picked up on your anxiety and was feeding off of it. Or maybe both of those things were occurring. Yeah, I don't know. It was definitely weird. Um, I haven't really had anything like that happen that severely ever before. I got out of there really quick, which almost everybody says, you know, once they get out, they feel a lot better. I just, I'm glad it wasn't, like you said earlier, 
one of the like violent feelings or mm-hmm. hearing things or I, I mean, I think that would have freaked me out way more. Now, this wasn't the only room that you got a feeling in was the pool room. You you felt something somewhere else, too, right? Right. Yeah, I was down in the uh, kitchen area in the basement where all the kitchens were. There's a long hallway and off the hallway is this kind of rudimentary refrigeration units. Um, they're kind of like walk-in freezers, but they're not at the same time. They're basically just very dark closets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they have it so that you can kind of step in and look into one. I was doing that. I was going up and down the closets and I was looking in them because I'm always, they have, you know, fake things there, like fake cans of food and different things just to give it the feeling mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you're still in a functioning basement. So I'm going into each one and I'm looking and I'm like, this is really cool. I'm really enjoying this. And there was one of them about three or four down that I stepped into to look into it. And I got the same kind of like really uncomfortable, like I was being watched feeling like something was in there. And I was like, uh, 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 I don't want to do this. And so I got out of there and um, kind of went into the kitchens and it got a little better in there. It's funny because I'm not the only person again when I looked it up. Uh, people said one of the freezers or two of the freezers down there really gave them those uncomfortable, uneasy feelings, almost like they're intruding on this family's home. Hmm. Like they're not supposed to be there. Something doesn't like it. I mean, I, I, I can understand that. And there's another room down in the basement that people also claim. Um, it seems to all be in the basement. There's another room in the basement people claim to have this really strong, terrifying feeling. But I didn't include that because it's the electrical room. And uh, there's oh. a lot of copper exposed, sure. and I'm wondering if, you know... Just picking um, up on that. Yeah, if it's just electromagnetic interference that's making people feel terrified. So. Sure, that's definitely a possibility. I, yeah, I would agree with that. That's pretty easy to debunk. Yeah, you know, like the closet one, there's no electric stuff in there. Mm-hmm. It's just a closet. Let me uh, ask you about those now. Were, were those original units to the house that are still there? Uh, the basement downstairs? Yeah, with these refrigeration things that you were talking about going into? Yes. And did they yeah. have, like, doors on them or anything? They do, but I think for the purposes of... Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's been a few years. I think for the purposes of the tours now, the doors have been removed. Now, or that the did they lock, do you know? Uh, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure if the doors are on there anymore. I really think that I was able to just look in. Mm -hmm. Now the door may have been open all the way, or if I'm remembering correctly, they may have like a half a door, a lower half that they've cut the door and you can look through. Sure. That may be actually now that I think about it, the way it's set up. But as far as I know, I don't remember seeing doors, but like I said, it's been a little bit. Yeah. I was just wondering if it was, it was similar to, you know, when we were kids growing up, they told you not to play with old, refrigerators and stuff because you could actually get locked in them and suffocate so i wondered if it was possible for somebody to get locked into one of these units i don't know that's possible maybe that's why i felt terrified i was gonna say of course i refrigerators getting trapped in those was a big fear for me as a kid because of a very graphic punky brewster episode so i mean (laughs) it could be that the biltmore estate is a grand home and it would be hard to leave even in death have some of the Vanderbilt family stayed on in the afterlife? Is the Biltmore Estate haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, and when we visit there next year, I guess we'll find out if we have any eerie feelings. Absolutely. I'll have to say, Stephen, you were right. We felt kind of weird here. 
Are you kidding? You can turn and say it to my face. If y'all go there, I'm going with you. Okay, I was like, Very I know cool. you said it was expensive, but I'm like, so hopefully oh. he'll be coming with us. <laughs> oh, it's worth it to go as long as, you know, you know, I'm not going to stand in the pool area with you to debunk. I'm going to just rush right through there. <laughs> we'll be like, no, no, you're going to be our little, um, what do they call it? Our, like a dousing rod. <laughs> No, no, no! I'll let you. You hang out with my wife in there. Maybe she'll get something this time. I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing that. He's like, anyway. So I'll just wait out here for you guys. Thanks. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for doing this research. Uh, this is some great stuff that you got here, and it's really cool when we get to talk to somebody who's actually been to the location. How overwhelming is it when you walk into a, a home that has over 250 rooms? I mean, when we first got there, I'd seen pictures growing up my whole life because I grew up not too far from it. And it was a whole different story seeing it up close. You know, I'm standing in front of this house and I I don't think I've ever stood in front of a building that large, except, you know, maybe the Capitol in D.C. It just feels just so daunting. And then you walk in and it's not any less large in there. It's very open. And, uh, oh, it's, it's insane. I've never seen anything like it. I can't imagine how much it must have cost to furnish this place. I could barely afford I, to furnish our house. <laughs> I have no clue. I was I was looking for that because I was kind of hoping I could find, like, it costs this much in modern-day dollars to build, but I couldn't track any of that down. Did they have a lot of the original furnishings in it? Yeah, as much as they can. I mean, you know, they tout that, you know, that's the same bed, that's the same uh, dresser, this is the same mirror. Like, they try to be very... Like the books in the library are all the same books. Wow, very um, cool. They are, they are very, very, very careful to uh, preserve as much of the history as they can. Well, from what I saw, it looked like it pretty much stayed in the family until they finally kind of turned it over to the city and the historical society and let them go ahead and run with it. Right, yeah, I was going to say it was like his grandson, I think, that finally turned it over. Yeah. Um, but it stayed in the family up until, I want to say the... 60s or early 70s when they finally it was open to the public in the 50s but i don't think they finally turned it over for a long time it's just kind of sad to see a family fall like they did because really you know you hear the vanderbilt name and you're like wow that's you know it's a big name but there's really nowadays when you talk to a vanderbilt not any of them are millionaires no you look at um Anderson Cooper, who's on CNN, and he had to start from the very bottom and work his way up to where he's at. He didn't get by with the Vanderbilt name or anything. So, is he a Vanderbilt? He is. Yeah, I oh, think. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, through his mom, I believe. Yeah, so he had to he had to start from the bottom, just like everybody else. And Gloria Vanderbilt. I mean, basically, she built her name in fashion. It wasn't because she had any money behind her either. So. Let's see, on our next episode, we are going to go to another location that has a little something to do with a murder weapon known as the axe, Denise. We are doing the Lizzie Borden house. Yeah, so that will be fascinating. We'll get into talking about the house and the Borden family and then the crime. The rhyme. And then, of course, as we always do, we will get into the hauntings that are associated with this home that is now a bed and breakfast. And apparently has a lot of things that go bump in the night around there. Yeah, I don't think I'd be sleeping there. (laughs) We want to thank you all for listening to this one. I have been your host, Diane. This has been Denise. This has been Steven. You all take care now. Bye-bye. 
Executive producers of this episode have been Levi Drescher, Dan Foytick, Janice Carlson, Stephen Pappas, Heather Williams, Dave and Ann Student, Amy Connor, Tanya Turner, Nicole Johnson, Leanna Sapien, Jade Lewis, April Rogers Crick, Laura Davis, Seth Crawford, Tracy Duhon, and Josh Wood. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.